Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now On, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with a buddy of ours, Steve Chang. Steve's a retired U.S. Army Special Forces officer and veteran of the Global War on Terror. Before retiring, he crossed over to command an Army recruiting battalion. Ben and I met Steve at Wharton Business School when we were all classmates. Steve has since taken the next step to found his professional transition company, Headlamp. I did the math, like I looked at the flight pattern from Incheon to SFO and oh. like the hours and like the tr- down to the train that I could take after, you know, work to jump on and, and get there. Yeah, but I was thinking about commuting <laughs> all that distance. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Ben, you got to hit record before before anybody joins, so we get the the totally natural uh, that's right conversation. This is where you take a snippet from the beginning and and or uh, from the middle. Yeah. So how how old are they now? You, it's got to be so tough yeah, to so, find stuff to do as a family with kids. During, yeah, during and we've COVID. got the range. You know, we've got the range of kids. So our daughter is fourteen. Uh, she's going to start high school next year. That's scary. Yeah. And then. Uh, the, the boys uh, 11 and nine. So if we didn't have New Hampshire, we like over the summer when, when the pandemic hit, we were out maybe twice a week, just, Hey kids, 6am we're, we're, we're headed to the white mountains. We're going to hike a, a mountain, <laughs> you know, find one that suits us. And, you know, just got out of the house. Um, that was like early on when school was canceled and there was just like, everyone was afraid to, you know, go grocery shopping, that sort of thing. We were just cooped up here. So we did a lot of that. Um, and then some soccer, you know, the, the kids had soccer and thankfully the, their team was able to kind of stay organized and keep things going. So that was our outlet. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have to do like homeschooling and that kind of stuff or are the, is it just like Zooms with the teachers or what? Yeah. I mean, you can call it homeschooling. Uh, it was hybrid. We did the hybrid. We chose, you know, we were very risk taking, I guess, had uh, a week on of school this year. We had a week on of school and a week off. Actually, when did that start? I'm trying to think even if that started at the beginning of the year. Uh, maybe not. It might have been a few months into it, like in November is when they allowed us to actually set foot on campus and did a week on, week off. On the weeks off, you know, the youngest, it'd be like 9 o'clock, class starts, 9.05, I hear the garage open and he's riding his bike outside. And I'm watching him out. I'm like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> teacher said, like, you know, come back at 10. We're done for the morning meeting. So it was, you know, it's not much oh, schooling. Crap. Yeah. But they, you know, they had a good time. They, they enjoy hanging out with each other and they've developed some of their own like games and that kind of thing. You know, they fill the time, right? That's what kids do. So what made you decide to stay? Cause just like your last post in the army was in new England and you just liked it or you didn't want to uh, disrupt the kids while they were in school or what? Yeah. I mean that there's probably a whole uh, calculus of reasons. One of the reasons is like we had, we thought we had one more move when we came up here and, you know, we'd head somewhere else. Turns out we didn't have one more move in our system, yeah. you know, our appetite for that. We ended up in Lexington, Mass, which, you know, you're, you're from up here. It's a great school system, great neighborhood, you know, safe, just kind of the cradle yeah. of our society, of our civilization, you know, just all, all the timing, that sort of thing. And, you know, we, we found a, a nice uh, community of friends. And then my wife was it, who's, uh, she's born in Korea. And she met a lot of folks that, frankly, we hadn't been able to, like in places like Fort Bragg, 
North Carolina or Kansas, uh, other places I've been, you know, so good place for her to engage with, you know, some friends and that sort of thing. When you say like you had, you thought you had one more move in you, was that like you thought you had the will to do one more army move or, or you thought that you'd have one career wise? Yeah, no, like the will to just, you know, uproot the family, um, <laughs> yeah. you know. The, yeah. So, and, and when we came up here, like the boys, it, they didn't know anything but them themselves and us. But my daughter, you know, so she, when we left Fayetteville, that's, uh, we were there before here, you know, she, she had to leave behind friends for the first time, right? And yeah. like, that was kind of tough on her. And, and so as we moved here and, you know, we were here for two years, um, the assignment was only two years, but you know, she's at that age where she's making friends and she's like joining the soccer team and she's, you know, tied in with the community and the boys are starting to do that. And, and so it's just like to look at them getting resettled again, all that kind of stuff. I mean, we, we had moved quite a bit, you know, as you know, as you know, like as everyone else has. I think in the, the big army, you move like so much, but special forces has this trade off where I think you move like your post assignment less frequently, but in between all of that, all, all like the, the high frequency travel would yeah. get to you too. But then in the big army, you just have like long ass deployments. I guess that's during the war. And I don't know if that's tapered off so far. So yeah, I think everything's just like a bundle of trade-offs. I think so. A lot of families are, you know, they, they feel the brunt of it. Um, you know, we're, we're, we like to be deployed, right? Sometimes, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, it was it was the best times to be in the military. But yeah, I think that you know uprooting the family. So I think it's true that uh, within soft community, our community, we were able to like stay in one spot for a long time, right? I think I was looking at just kind of career path and and the types of moves that are ahead of me. We were looking at three moves within like two and a half years, just because of my timeline and you know all the different schools and assignments I would have to you know if I were tracking, you know, assuming that I would continue to track. Uh, well with my career. That's that's what we were looking at. And it was like, it was just too much right at the uh, critical age for the kids. And, you know, for the first time where we felt like we had a, a, a connection to the community. Because, you know, before that, it's like two years at Bragg, two years at DC, uh, you know, some time in Kansas, that kind of thing. Were you right at 20? I was, yeah. I, I just cleared it by probably two months or so. So One thing I think is interesting and in that I, I don't know anyone else who did this maybe i just don't know enough people but you went from sf officer to recruiting as your last station yeah which is wild because a lot of people in the army like they get recruited but then they really don't learn anything else about recruiting from like a management view or or from being in because i would like to know more about how the army actually like conducts yeah. recruiting from from the inside it, it was fascinating i mean we we had a blast so there was uh so I was the battalion commander for the New England recruiting commander, New Hampshire, Maine, uh, Rhode Island, and Eastern Mass, kind of out to Springfield. That's you know what we call New England. There were eight battalions uh, within 1st Brigade, which kind of ranged uh, down to uh, Virginia. And out of those eight battalions, I think there were four Special Forces officers up here. And you know one other uh, MI, Ranger Battalion, you know kind of background guy. And it was a blast, you know, to, to come up with, you know, peers that had sort of that sort of mindset and to be introduced into like that part of the army that, you know, I, I was never really recruited into the army. I, I came in through ROTC, so I didn't even have that experience. 
Um, I did go through NEPS, apparently. You know, I don't remember it. <laughs> but to see that whole process in the big machine, I mean, it was, it was fascinating to learn to try to innovate within that space. You know, we were, uh, <laughs> they probably regretted uh, grouping so many special ops guys together, but we were trying to break things left and right and uh, yeah. you know, change the way things work. But then you, you know, we really gained appreciation or you, you know, you gain an appreciation for what the recruiters are doing for what the, both the volunteer, the full-time recruiters, and then the ones who are just assigned, you know, who are pulled out of whatever assignment out of an infantry platoon and, and told, Hey, you're going to recruit for two years and you know, you better do well. Otherwise your career is over kind of thing. There's a, it's a very stressful environment for them, but to learn the whole process was just fascinating. Um, it's a big machine. You know, I don't think anyone else kind of approaches talent management and building a workforce the way the army does. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're like a senior non-commissioned officer in a big army, you get told you're either doing recruiting or drill sergeant. Like those are the two big things. And then if you can swing some other kind of like parallel career duty, yeah, uh, you do it. But I never really had to worry about that. Um, yeah. I think in, in, in SF, you, it's more of an instructor thing, right? Like you go back to right. teach some portion of the Q course or some other skills course and, you know, all roads lead back to brag. Yeah. But uh, like you did, correct me if wrong, but you did kind of like a turnaround job in New England in terms of past performance and then what you were able sure. to achieve. And so first, because you mentioned I'm actually from nearby there. Yeah. But also, I think New England is probably one of the hardest places to recruit from. Why is that? It's the hardest place to recruit from because there are so many uh, other opportunities afforded to, to kids who grew up here. You know, educational opportunities, just if you want to go work at some family-owned business, there, there's those opportunities, I guess. But the educational opportunities, I mean, we were competing mostly with colleges because everyone, you know, sort of... Uh, not everyone, but a, a big percentage, you know, a higher percentage than other parts of the country are college minded. Yeah, we definitely had to change the approach. I, I remember it was either pre command course or it was at the uh, like our introduction to recruiting where we went to uh, Fort Knox for, you know, a couple of weeks to meet everybody, learn the system and everything. And, and they introduced us to the computer system that tracks things. And it's like, oh, here are the battalion rankings, like who, how everyone is doing. And I got to look. Uh, you know, I, I crawled my way to the computer and I looked and I'm just scrolling down and, and everyone's just laughing. They're like, ah, oh, Chang, you know, you guys are 38 of 38. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So turn around, you know, I mean, um, a, a le I'm only a legend in my own, own mind, you know, tried to turn things around. Sure. You know, we, we tried things to survive and, and make good things uh, happen. But, um, you know, we were successful in some things. Um, how much of that is like, just fresh energy, uh, luck. That there's so many factors that go into it that it's really a tough business. And you know, hat goes off to you know goes to the professional recruiters, all the 79 Romeos, you know, who are committed to the job. And yeah. there's some incredible people, incredible leaders, because it's a different environment. You know, that that type of leadership in recruiting than say like on a deployment. So I'm gonna take a wild guess and say the number one and two ranks were like Ohio and Florida. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, the, the company that did the best, you know, so each battalion had several companies. The, the best company in the, in the nation is um, Fayetteville, <laughs> right outside oh, okay. of Fayetteville. Yeah. Well, right. So, uh, you know, they, if they weren't producing hundreds of people at a time, 
then there was something wrong. And so it was like a different problem there. For, their, uh, for them, it was more about like the process and are you being diligent about about the paperwork and about, you know, just scheduling things and getting the whole machine moving. There's plenty of people lining up. You just have to get through them all. Our challenge was, you know, in, in places like New York City, Mid-Atlantic, it was getting enough people to like take you seriously, you know, take your recruiter seriously and uh, yeah. walk in. But, you know, there, there are pockets in New England that we, we hit up that traditionally uh, provided a pretty steady flow of folks into the military. So... I would say in Florida and Ohio, because I think uh, half or two thirds of my basic training platoon was coming <laughs> out of those two. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just assume. That's right. Yeah. Is it like incredibly metrics driven? Absolutely. Or, oh yeah. Like, because I almost imagine it like you're running some kind of big scale, like marketing and sales operation. Yeah. It's very metric driven. Everything was measured to the extent that like I'd never seen, you know, we, we were metrics driven in special ops, obviously, like those kinds of things. You know, if you're not measuring anything, then it's you're not able to judge how you're doing. But it was like overkill in recruiting. How many people did you talk to today? How many people did you get to, you know, submit uh, something? How many people walked in the door? How many did you convert? What percentage, you know? What percentage of left-handed people did you, you know, um, I mean, day, day, we get daily messages of like, okay, here's like what we're pushing today, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, because it's a huge machine, right? And at HRC, you know, the Army G1, they're, they're predicting and trying to figure out, hey, we need an end strength of 416,000 next year, or we need 480, whatever uh, was said in uh, coming out of the White House, like end strengths, we're going to grow the Army. All right, well. That's going to trickle down, and we're going to have to figure out how to grow the army. And so there's there's all these levers and and uh, conversion rates that we had to track. So definitely uh, very metrics oriented and driven. Last recruiting question: as a as a battalion commander, what's the wildest recruiting story that you had to deal with or sort out? So you're you're meeting with you know, so it's any story that can pop up in America, right? <laughs> you know, you're just you're talking with everybody. I like mean, dude smoking a joint on his way to get the physical. Yeah, I mean, the, there's always that kind of stuff. It didn't happen, I don't think, while I was there. But you've heard, you know, you hear about these stories where <laughs> recruiters get so desperate they'll they'll recruit someone um, and get credit for it, and and they'll have told the guy, hey, when you get to to Meps, when they take you to the airport, just leave. And you know, so they don't show up and, uh, but I never witnessed that. So I didn't, I didn't see that, but you, you hear about these sort of stories that people who are getting desperate, you know, because they're just like under the gun constantly. Uh, I remember meeting a recruit who, you know, he had some issues, um, you know, sort of like disciplinary things in his background that we had to talk about. And that's why the battalion commander gets involved because there's some sort of waiver that's, uh, that's necessary. And the recruits, you know, the recruiters, they they want to they want to get people you know people through the funnel right and they they picked up this kid and like they're telling me like they had to buy him shoes because he doesn't have shoes like he didn't have appropriate shoes anyway um, that they bought him clothes to to present to me and you know we sat down and heard his story and it's just like this really tough tough uh, upbringing that he had and it's like if you you know if you can't see the mitigating circumstances around this guy then you know you're not a human being so. You had those kind of experiences. I'm trying to think of something more fun or crazy, you know, that that you're looking for. So, um, well, I don't know if know. I was looking for it, but I mean, armies <laughs> like can just turn around someone's life like that, though, right? I'm pretty sure you saw some of that. 
yeah. at least some of the kids that would like come back and visit home after basic training. Yeah. Yeah. And just like be a completely different person and their family and friends and teachers look at them like, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you get uh, all of that. We had one female recruit who she became, I think, you know, probably the first or one of the first infantry uh, soldiers coming out of Maine. I mean, she was working as a waitress at, at like the Texas Roadhouse up in Bangor, Maine. <laughs> and, you know, just like that was her life and that's what it was going to be. And the recruiters just saw something and talked to her and, you know, we were able to get her through the system and she returned as like an infantry soldier, right? Just very proud of what she had accomplished. Like one of the first of the first women to get through the pipeline that way. And she carries that with her now. And so that's pretty amazing to, to see that process. Awesome. How does Steve, how does first contact happen? Is it ever outreach driven or is it mostly like, cause when I think of recruitment, I think of there's offices and you go to it and yeah. then that's where the conversation starts. Yeah. So we had recruiting centers. Uh, th this is where like, you know, Matt, you were talking about some of the stuff we were trying to do to turn around. This is what we did during my command. It was, um, you know, how, how do you talk, talk to and touch more individuals? So, uh, the usual playbook is, you know, you have people who walk in and that's just, you know, those are like the unicorns, uh, someone who walks in and who doesn't have issues. Right. That was probably Matt who showed up and they're like, where, where have you been all my life? You know, here, sign these papers. Haverhill, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Haverhill recruiting station. Yeah. It's like right next to a laundromat, whatever. Yep. <laughs> Across the bus stop Walk, over there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's near the reservoir, which is nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would have been in you know in in your in your command. Yeah, but yeah, walked in off the street. It was like a week after I got my license, which yeah. was like a week after nine yeah. eleven, and I was like, I want to, you know, I had probably told this story on the podcast before, but I was like, I just want to go fight. Like, I want who are the guys that just like you get a gun and you go fight? And you're like infantry. I go, yeah, let's Done. do that. And <laughs> turns out, yeah, turns out, you know, you got a kid with like no disciplinary problems and like the you know highest test score you could get and my recruiter was like are you serious and I'm like yeah yeah all right so anyway <laughs> he called it a he called it a slam dunk i actually really like my recruiter he was the man yeah yeah no that you know th those kind of relationships are great because you know you, you walked in you had a purpose and you found an outlet for your purpose right and, and it just you jived well we called, you know, guys like you, unicorns who walk in, you know, I assume no major issues, no injuries. You know, we get some of that sports injuries and we get the drug and the disciplinary things in the background. A couple of DUIs have had to wave or fight through, but you're clean and you want to just do the hard jobs, right? Because some, not everyone wants to do that. They're, you know, they're going for the educational benefits and they're coming in for other things. Um, I lost track of the original question here. We were oh, first point of contact. Yeah. So the first point of contact, um, the usual playbook was like, go to the schools, you have your school visits. Uh, but in a lot of cases in, in new England, the schools would be very restrictive. And, you know, sometimes they would like escort my recruiters off that they would like call the, uh, campus security guy and say, Hey, you guys can't be here and, and walk the recruiters off because you know, they, they don't want that, you know, this, Hey, our school doesn't, we don't feed to the military like we're feeding to, you know, to the colleges down in Boston. Um, Ben's face is like, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> this it's is true, though. It, it happens, you know, and, and and you understand why. I mean, it's what the the 
the families want and it's what the community wants. So I get it, but you know, at the same time, so we had to figure out a way around that. Right. And, uh, you'd have some recruiters who felt like, you know, you, you, uh, go to the mall or you try to go find where people are like have idle, you know, who aren't being productive. It's like, all right, what you, you and you, you're not doing, you don't look like you're doing anything. So <laughs> come in and talk to me. You know, and, and so you have all that and you have some great salesmen and people who just can talk, uh, talk it up with with somebody off the street. So that's a point of engagement. We took things uh, sort of towards the digital realm. Uh, we felt like everyone was was online, and that that was a, a good way to reach out to them. And so we, you know, sort of experimented with with a few ways of doing it. You know, I grabbed up like the more tech savvy uh, recruiters that we had in the, within the formation, and kind of threw them all in a room and gave them a bunch of computers and said, you know, just figure this out, you know, contact more people, um, you know, help, help the recruiters out there. You're sort of like the, I won't call it Intel. We're not gathering Intel on the American people, but you know, we're, we're sort of helping uh, prep the battlefield, so to speak for, for the recruiters to be able to be more successful. Yeah. It's like running a CRM operation in, in business. Yeah. And, 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 Come to find out, yeah, that's all it was, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we, were, we were so far behind. And, and the systems are there. And it's a big machine. But um, the focus on kind of like social media and using technology, you know, to our, to our advantage to reach as many people as possible. Because the reality is, like, if you're susceptible to the message of joining the military, there are not many people that you can just, like, talk them out of their plan to go be a dentist. And, you know, they have a, a pathway mapped out for them. So... You know, you just yeah. want to find the ones that are maybe susceptible to the to the idea of service. I'm sure we'll tie in a lot of that later when we get into what you're doing right now. But now that we've covered the sexy stuff, we'll yeah. talk about a little about special forces. Yeah. <laughs> and tone, <laughs> tone it down a little bit. That's right. My voice yeah. dropped an octave there. You know, got to <laughs> sound cool when we talk special ops. No. What, uh, did you spend most of your time in first group? I only spent like, two years in first group, went out there, did a couple of J sets, did a deployment to Iraq. Uh, we took the, uh, Republic of Korea rock army when they deployed to Iraq. So we brought them in and I was there cause I spoke Korean, although yeah. everyone we worked with spoke English perfectly. And then from there, you know, decided I wanted to try something else out and, uh, did another selection and, you know, kind of, uh, spent most of my time within sort of that community. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, feel the same way about German. I was stationed in Germany. German was my Germany. German. I was stationed in Germany. Yeah. German was my like target language that I got to learn to be a Green Beret, and then everybody in Germany speaks English. Yeah. Like it came in handy. Uh, it came in handy when I was like lost and had to ask for directions in Austria or something, like in some podunk town. But yeah. <laughs> so did you grow up speaking Korean or? I grew up listening to Korean. Okay. So, <laughs> my, my parents were, uh, yeah, they spoke Korean. And actually, you know, so for the Q course, I tried to test out of language and I scored a three zero. So my listening comprehension was perfect, <laughs> uh, but I couldn't read um, a, a lick of it. So like I was an illiterate Korean. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I, so I, I grew up listening and then learned how to speak Korean. I had a uh, I had a dude in my class who actually went to like there's a SF detachment in Korea. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's part of first group or what, or if it's just part of the command. 
but I think he was, his parents were Korean and I don't know if he tested out or not, but he got sent straight there. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. There, there's guys in the command there and, um, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a critical skill. If you, you know, if you're beyond just kind of school taught, if you have true fluency, you know, where you grew up speaking it and it's, it's part of, uh, who you are, I think that's, that's pretty useful, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So my wife is Korean and actually, you know, my language skills only improved really. Uh, the, the Q course did a little bit to get my reading and that kind of stuff up, but my language skills, you know, um, improved markedly after I got married and, you know, cause we speak pretty much like 50, 50 Korean. She, if, if she watches it, she's going to laugh and kind of point out that my Korean is probably, um, you know, it's not quite as good as her English, but uh, that that's where I learned most of my Korean. So do you do that with your kids now too? With our daughter. Cause you said 50, 50 in the, is it like 50, 50 in the house? It, it is. So like, and, and it's funny and I'm just like passing on my own experience. Right. So I grew up listening to it and being talked yeah. to in Korean or like scolded in Korean, uh, getting in <laughs> trouble in Korean, but they don't respond in Korean. You know, they, they have yeah, a few okay. stock phrases that they can say, uh, we, you know, we visited Korea earlier on when they were younger, a, f- a few times, you know, put them in like, uh, nursery school in Korea and they, they came back speaking perfectly, but then it, it just dissipates. So language is a, is a tough skill to, to keep up, I think. But our daughter, she, because she's a teenager and she likes K-pop stuff now, um, it's actually cool to know Korean among her friends. So she's, oh, wow. she's like, she taught herself Korean to read Korean and to, you know, so she's getting pretty good at it. And she had that base when she was younger where, you know, she visited Korea. So she was taught it, you know, sort of formally before. Nice. Yeah. Ben's huge on K-pop. I bet. He keeps wanting to change our, uh, our intro song over, but you know, we got, we got the one, we got to stick with it. Yeah. I mean, it goes beyond BTS. <laughs> you got to check out our TikTok feed. I will. <laughs> I want to yeah. see some dances there, Ben. Matt gets wild. <laughs> so wait, so how long? So how long did you spend living abroad? And is that where you met? Yeah, if I'm getting too much into like personal and family stuff, no, nah, that's I. I don't know. Um, my only reference point, the uh, you know, my apologies. The only other podcast um, I listened to was Micah's earlier yeah. on, and I listened to that, and I felt comfortable with all that. So I figure everything's okay. Open, you know. I actually met my wife in California in my hometown, but that was before. So when I was in first group, I was in Okinawa. So I spent two years in Okinawa. I was there unaccompanied, you know, unmarried uh, before I met my wife for a few months, came back stateside, went to, went back to Bragg for uh, Safartech training and then stopped by in California and met my wife there. We kept up a long distance relationship for a while, kind of visited each other, had a trip to Korea while she was there. So we lived, uh, I lived two years in Okinawa. So I guess that's overseas. And she was there uh, with me for about a year and a half, a, a year of that. I'm making up all these dates and numbers. I mean, it's roughly true. <laughs> so, um, it, okay. you know, it's, it's about that. I guess you can consider my time in Hawaii overseas too. So that was my first assignment. Oh, not bad. Not bad. Yeah. The military considers that overseas. So I was looking at this. I'm like, where do they get six years total overseas time? And uh, they're counting two and a half years of living on the North Shore pre 9-11, just having good times, I guess. If you're like regular army person, I'm sorry, but if you are standing next to somebody 
graduate basic training or OCS or ROTC and you're looking at one dude or chick they got like Fort Polk Louisiana and you got Hawaii or the you know or vice versa you're like how the hell does this even work yeah what did I do wrong to get you know <laughs> this location how this guy because I certainly didn't do anything right you know like to get yeah. Hawaii I think that was even decided Gosh, I want to, it's like 20 plus years ago now, but that was just like decided before they could even measure any sort of performance. So it wasn't performance based, you know, it was just like total luck of the draw, I think. But, you know, I knew I was going to Hawaii when I uh, graduated college and headed to infantry basic course. And, and my buddies are headed to like Fort Hood, Texas, which, you know, these are all great places, but um, yeah, it's Hawaii and we lived on the North shore. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> So you talk about doing ROTC. Did you start like straight up first year freshman or did you have to be talked into that? Or what was like, do you have anyone else in the military in your family? How was all this like precursor to actually becoming an army officer? No, there was, uh, my parents were generally against it. Um, you know, my mother, there's no one, you know, my parents immigrated to the, to the States from Korea. Um, I was born here. My brother and sister were born in Korea. Um, no chance for service there. Uh, my dad served in the Korean army, but that's because everyone has to. My mother was against it, but I didn't uh, do ROTC until my uh, junior year, like uh, summer of my sophomore year. I was working to put myself through school and, you know, on an on-campus job. And uh, one of my coworkers was in ROTC about to graduate when I was a sophomore when I started there. So he sort of hooked me up with the information and uh, I walked into Frank Roberts' office, the PMS at San Diego State. So I was at UC San Diego. He was at San Diego State is where the ROTC program was. It was like late, late in the semester between sophomore and junior year summer where you have to uh, go to basic training to start the program, you know, if you really want to graduate on time. And he's like, why are you walking in this late? Like, everyone's got orders. My slate's full. And I sort of had to convince him. Uh, that I wanted to do this. Um, but I guess, you know, part of your question too is like, you know, what what's the origin of wanting to serve? I just was always interested in uh, in kind of things military, I guess, and uh, this idea of service, you know, serving your country. It was just like, I don't know, you know, I can't pinpoint it to any one thing, but growing up, other kids played other things. I, you know, I played uh, soldier, you know, in the woods next to uh, next to our house, you know, with, with the guys around the street. So, you know, it just yeah. what, what came natural to me. What was the plan leading up to that summer? Or you, were you just like college? <laughs> what do you mean plan? <laughs> <laughs> that It's funny you ask that. I probably didn't have a plan. Um, I think I wanted, you know, so I was, I was interested in like physics until I figured out that there was like a lot of math involved. So, you know, that got tough. And, okay. you know, so I think I wanted to be some sort of scientist. I, you know, I didn't really have uh, a specific kind of career path that I was interested in following. You know, so I started there. I switched to poli sci um, after like two years as a physics major. It's about that time where I, I was away from home long enough uh, on my own and, you know, starting to think about, you know, what I want to do on my own and uh, what interests me. And it was, you know, it was... It was things government. It was things service related. It was how nations interact with each other and that sort of thing. So started just shifting 
shifting my way towards that kind of career path. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people I talk to, maybe it's just me, they didn't do all four years ROTC. Unless they went to like a service academy, then there's really no delineation. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, but even Micah, I think he said he didn't start first year. He kind of ran out of money. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, that's the way he told it. He like, yeah, he he uh, he provisioned enough for like one year of college, and I was like, how do I make the other three work? That's right. No, I, I remember. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just listened to it recently. So, uh, you know, him talking about that, and you know, it was about the scholarship and that thing. And I, I was. I was wondering if you would get to that, but I was laughing at myself because I actually, I turned down the scholarship. I don't know why. Um, I think at the time I saw that it came with like more of a commitment. I, I didn't know I was going to do 20 years in the military and that I would like it or that I would be able to fake it long enough to, to last this long. But it was just like, oh, I'm not going to sign that. You know, I, I had no one advising me and sort of guiding me on that. And, and so anyway, <laughs> You don't realize it's actually a pretty short time at that age. It's like two for one or something like that, right? Yeah, it, it was something like that. And like I burned through that time where I was still having a lot of fun and doing a lot of training and, you know, that sort of stuff. So like in hindsight, yeah, that was like one of the probably silliest things that um, makes no sense, you know, whatsoever <laughs> as you look back at it. But from the perspective of, of like a 19 or 20 year old guy, I think guys maybe in in general, a little bit less uh, forward thinking at that age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it made perfect sense. <laughs> was going from being an infantry officer to SF just like a natural progression or you just wanted to try the next hardest thing or you saw somebody else do it? I, I, almost, I almost feel like it was just like the thing to do uh, for my generation of infantry officers. Like we, yeah. we had so many guys that were leaving for the Q course yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm thinking through back all these, you know, the faces and names. And when I came into the military in 97, went to Hawaii, um, you know, we did infantry basic. We did ranger school, airborne school. It was kind of like, you know, that was just the inertia. You, you did all those things without thinking about it. And then you get to your assignment and you find out like, all right, the coolest thing you could possibly do is maybe go on the Sinai mission where, you know, the 25th at the time was sending like a, a company at a time to the Sinai Peninsula. And that was like a deployment. And, and other than that, you had like the, the national training centers and, you know, JRTC and that sort of stuff. And if you wanted to deploy, if you wanted to do anything, going SF was kind of the way. So a lot of people at that time that I recall, they were either getting out after their, their initial service or they were headed to, to the Q course to try it out. I mean, it appealed to me, I think, in some ways. But I mean, you know, it, it's all—it's hard to separate like fact from fiction here, you know, in terms of heights, like what I knew then uh, versus now, because like you, you really don't don't know what you're getting into, <laughs> kind of ahead of it. You have no yeah. idea what the culture's like. You have no idea what's going to be expected of you. You have no idea of, or at least I didn't have any idea of uh, what it was really like we we had little influences here and there where you run into someone who had that sort of experience and i guess it's like it's fascinating right you know it's like oh yeah tell me more those are cool stories and you want to be part of that so that's kind of how my path led me to uh to special ops and you said you came in 97 so where are you career-wise when 9-11 happened yeah is this around the same time are you making the jump yeah so so i had already decided to go let me see when did I go 
so I, on 9-11, I was at the infantry officer advance course, kind of the six-month course that every captain uh, in the combat arms has to go through, infantry officers. And I think I, yeah. if I rec- yeah, so I went through assessment and selection, SFAS, before that in route. So I already knew I was headed to the Q course after the advanced course when 9-11 hit. So I was, you know, already headed into it. And yeah, you know, you know, kind of 9-11, everyone sort of remembers where they were. Uh, that morning, so um, yeah, we're we're in Building Four uh, at Fort Benning, grabbing coffee and bagels before our first classes that day, and sort of everything changed and stopped from that moment on, right? Yeah, and then it got like uh, you know very <laughs> real all of a sudden. I'm sure, right? You know, for everybody. So I had a buddy who was at the uh, Ranger Battalion there, and he sort of just like disappeared on us. Uh, he's among the first to jump in. Um, yeah. to Afghanistan and it's like yeah and you know it's what everybody signed up for it's what everyone sort of um, sort of wanted you know right like you're this is what you've been training for and then but then it becomes real and it's like all right here we go Ben a little another cool army tip is that if you go on an army base buildings just have <laughs> like <laughs> randomly assigned numbers that don't correspond to any buildings around them or the street that it's on. Yeah. I don't I don't know if this is to confuse the Soviet army when they parachute in. Yeah. Or to thwart Google Maps. Yeah. But everybody in the army knows it and it's the craziest thing. But you know exactly where I'm talking about or you know if you've like ask any infantry officer it's like building four they're like oh yeah I remember it distinctly. Yeah but it makes no sense. Yeah, you know, like, go to go to building 150. Oh, where is that? Is it next to building 160? No, it's actually on the other side of post. Oh, okay. Does it have a street address? No, it's just the building. Well, what street is it on? I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, no rhyme or reason. We asked this of uh, another guy, but is military retirement a misnomer? Is military retirement a misnomer? Like, um, yeah. You're not retired, even though you spent 20 years. Yeah. No, I mean, you got to keep doing something. I mean, I'm, yeah. you're in your 40s when you retire, generally, on average, right? And, uh, I mean, you're just you're just getting started. So, definitely interesting to think about that. And, obviously, you know, what I'm doing for work now, you know, deals with this a little bit. But military retirement is a misnomer. You're definitely transitioning away from the service. And, you know, the term retirement comes with, like, you know, certain... Um, privileges and benefits, you know, I can still go on base. Uh, I, I've obviously draw retirement, but um, still have access to the PX. So some, oh. some good perks there. I mean, I bet you missed Fantastic. that. <laughs> the commissary every now and then when the pandemic hit the toilet paper and other things were, you know, hard to come by. I was like, hmm. we're, we're headed to base and we found everything we needed. <laughs> so it was, it was our little secret. We have, you know, uh, Hanscom, uh, Air Force Base right around the corner. So they have a yeah. nice little commissary. <laughs> but yeah, other than like what it uh, implies, you know, about how much service you did and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, the, at least guys at the 20 year mark, guys and gals at, at the 20 year mark, you're not, um, you're not retiring. I'm, I think I know a few people that took that literally <laughs> and they're like not working and they're just, they're going to find a place for their, a cabin in the woods and, sort of yeah. go hunting and but not many most most people are trying to transition and figure out the next thing 
I have a buddy who says he's going to do nothing. Yeah. And we're sort of, I think we're pretty close to came in right at the same time. So yeah, he'll be, he'll be able to military retire in like two years. Right. And he said, said to me, Stone Cold, I'm going to do nothing. He goes, I'm going to hunt. Yeah. I got a house that's paid off. I'm going to go hunt. I'll have a pension. I'm good. I don't spend a lot of money. I'm like, all right, well, you're definitely in the uh, minority, buddy. I mean, you but, know, if for the guys like that's great because you can do that if you want. Um, that's an option, but I don't golf, I don't fish, I don't hunt. So that's like the big three, I think, for most. Like, what what am I going to do? You know, so I I have yeah. nothing to fill my time with. So for me, it was like twenty years was the first opportunity to retire, and decided for all the reasons we talked about earlier about family and moving and all that. It was the time. And, you know, it's tough, but it's like, yeah, in no way um, am I, like, too tired to work. I mean, I I certainly miss the environment. I stay up to speed with my peers who are still in and, you know, talk with them every now and then. Mostly gossip because I can't really get the, the truth about what's going on uh, about everything. Yeah. But gossiping uh, about who's moving where and who's doing what and, you know, what's coming down the pipe and that sort of thing. So what role did school play? Because uh, I don't know if that we've just gone on and interviewed everybody that we went to school with, but Ben and I and uh, Steve are all classmates from grad school. So I think you might be like the third person on the show in our cohort. And some of that. So, and then obviously we got to talk about Headlamp, you know, your company, yeah. and then some of the other kind of stuff that surround this. But when you're when you're reaching that twenty year mark. Do you already have this like formulation of what you want to do or this this uh you know goal of what you want to do afterwards or did you go to school to figure it out or did you go to school to solidify it or what Yeah how does it all come together Absolutely um great stuff to talk about there this is going to be disappointing for like a military officer and a special forces and guys from our community we we plan and we do man there was no plan <laughs> this was this was all just like uh, very last minute and like off the cuff. I was actually I I lobbied to get a position, a specific assignment and called in some favors or reached out to people to to ask if they would help me. General officers who I had worked with before got the assignment that I asked for. So, you know, I don't know if, if it was directly related, but, you know, or if it was just not a, a you know, desired assignment. Um and then uh, actually refused orders um, after a period of time when we, you know, because all in this process was the rest of the calculus of deciding that we were done with, with moving and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and, mm. and continuing on. So, so I got out with like, I made the decision to get out at about six months, six months left in command, like eight months uh, before my 20 year mark. So very short uh, sort of. Uh, at least for a retirement, I, I think that's relatively short. You know, how do you communicate that to the people that you ask to help you? <laughs> well, um, I I did send an email, but uh, never got a response to it. Um, I haven't seen him 
uh, again, but he's certainly moving up in places. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, I guess I'll just, uh, have that conversation with him if, if he ever, if I ever run into him, if, if he even cares, you know, the, the thing yeah. is like, um, the thing about the military though is cause I thought long and hard about that and, you know, just <laughs> felt uh, a sense of loyalty to, um, to everyone, just, you know, everyone who was invested in my career. But it dawned on me the moment when I called Branch and told him that this was what I was going to do. And I can almost like hear, um, you know, I imagine hearing him like just flipping the Rolodex and it's like, all right, uh, who's behind Chang? All right. He, he was already processing it. And before the phone call was over, you know, I was backfilled yeah. and the next man, uh, you know, was called up and filling in. So after that phone call, I just realized like, yeah, you know, it's you, you serve until you can't serve anymore. And then. The army is going to keep rolling on. The service is going to keep rolling on. So anyway, so that's one part of the story of just like burning bridges and not managing uh, relationships well. Um, <laughs> well, I don't say it to say burn bridges. I'm no, actually no. <laughs> I'm actually pretty interested because because when you're in the army, you feel like this incredible sense of loyalty. And if someone does yeah. you a solid, yeah. you feel like indebted to that person because yeah the bond is so much or even just like your call to service and you tie it into all of that. But like I talk to people who are either looking for jobs or want, a, you know, are asking for like a personal connection with somebody else or like you can't choose everything. So, I mean, even like if you get two competing job offers, you really like both of them, you can't take both. So you have to communicate to one person how much you appreciate it. Yeah but that your life is going in a different direction. And so, you know, I think it's, it's like a point of maturity to realize that that happens, but also when you're on the other end of that and you helped somebody out uh, to, to be okay with them choosing a different path, even though you helped them. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, you know, that, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to unpack there and absolutely like the, more than anything, um, it's probably the loyalty factor, you know, to, to folks that not only, you know, just helped you out this one time, you know, if, if they're in a position to do that, then, you know, obviously you've, you've developed a relationship and work with that person for a while. So, I mean, these are people that I guess I would consider, you know, I would idolize them. I mean, they're, they're like the types of leaders that you want. Right. And the fact that I got to work with them is, was a privilege and things I learned from them, just like incredible. And then, to feel like you're sort of, um, that to feel like you're asking them for a favor and then sort of leaving them hanging is, is not a great feeling whatsoever. But ultimately it is, this is why it's like selfless service, right? That is one of yeah. the, the values and, um, that the army upholds and it's kind of like it's selfless service until it's not right. <laughs> and for me, it was just, you know, the, the family, I, I knew nothing else, but to serve and to just, you know, do what the army asked me to do. And, you know, I didn't care to have anything else in my life. Uh, but I had a family who n didn't necessarily sign up for that. So that, that was ultimately for us, like the competing pressure to seek out other opportunities and, and to look at, all right, so now what are we going to do? And I'm, again, I'm getting some of this timeline sort of, it's all muddled together, but decided, all right, business school sounds like a good idea. Let me find one that's, uh, will be a good uh, learning experience, will be a good challenge. You know, I think uh, everyone who is at our program, you're not there unless you appreciate a, you know, a good challenge. So uh, yeah. that attracted me to, to our program. And 
applied and it's like everything came to a head within uh, days or weeks of uh, when I had to refuse orders before you know I was committed to the assignment. I had conversations with my future commander. He was out in Korea. I, I was even trying to convince him, hey, I will out of pocket and with my personal leave, like, let me come to the assignment and I'll do the school from Korea and travel. And, you know, come to find out we had classmates who were doing that kind of thing. But for him, it's like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. You know, that's not exactly uh, what you need to do. So if you're going to, you know, if, if, if we can't make this work, um, and I was already, already leaning towards this idea that what would be my sort of goal of staying in? And it's like the realiza- realization that, you know, I'm starting to think about myself. And so if, if, if I'm not just ready to go wherever, then I can't be fully committed. So I, I need to just uh, let them know that let, let's end it here. <laughs> um, yeah. And so had the plan, you know, so had some inkling of going to business school, decided to go to school and going into school, started to think about what are the things that interest me and, you know, what kind of work do I want to do? And I guess, um, you know, I'm lucky to be in a position where I can, you know, sort of choose what I want to do. Had some time to kind of, in terms of a buffer of time to make decisions, um, and then started to glom onto the idea of entrepreneurship and, you know, looked at a couple of different models while I was in school. And as we wrapped up, started wrapping up, started to pursue it in earnest uh, because realized, you know, you can't, you can't uh, pursue entrepreneurship sort of at half speed, you know, you're, you're either doing it or you're not. So figured out at the end of school, as we were graduating, that this is what I was going to do and have been working on uh, Headlamp. Wait, so just to stop here for a sec, you were going to commute from Korea to Philly twice a month for two years? <laughs> uh, actually, so San Francisco, I applied to the San Francisco campus because, you know. So, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, so, I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot closer. It's only the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I did the math. Like I looked at the flight pattern from Incheon to SFO and oh. like the hours and like the tr- down to the train that I could take after, you know, work to jump on and, and get there. And what I was doing, though, and, I, and this is like what I was talking about, you know, sort of the selfless uh, service thing. It's like I, I was trying to, like, get, you know, have both, right? You know, have a transition plan kind of in place now that I, I thought that I might be getting out. Um, and, and you know, the I, idea of still, um, you know, getting this assignment that I wanted to head to. So, but it just, they didn't, they didn't jive with each other. So, um, I, in hindsight, I was probably already committed to, to retiring at that point, but, um, you know, I was just trying to make, you know, it's the loyalty, it's the inertia, all that kind of stuff, 20 years, you know, like I, I didn't know anything else of what I want to do. So it's like, but I have to go there, you know, that's, I've got orders, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, you know, yeah. and there's a job for me to do there that I could do well. And so you, you just don't want to, it's loyalty to the people, but also to the sort of the mission and the, you know, the cause and like all the war fighters that are out there that you're supposed to support. Right. You know, it's like, this is my time to give, give back to everybody. But yeah, but yeah. I was thinking about commuting <laughs> all that distance. So. Oh. Hey everyone, time for this episode's intermission. First, we want to make sure that you know where to find Steve's company, Headlamp. So go over to myheadlamp.com and see what he and his co-founder are doing. Steve also makes a shout out this episode to Warrior Scholar Project. 
From the battlefield to the classroom, Warrior Scholar Project is empowering enlisted veterans and service members through skill bridging and sustained support so that each one seeking a degree succeeds in the transition to higher education and beyond. Find out more at warrior-scholar.org. That's warrior-scholar.org. If you're interested in more about this podcast, you can check us out at thankyounowwhat.com. There we have our entire backlog of episodes and descriptions, links to all your podcast players, links to our Twitter and Instagram, uh, maybe a t-shirt. You can also email us directly at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com or uh, use the contact form on the website for any show feedback. If you really like what we're doing and you want to contribute to the show, you'll see some links for PayPal or Patreon. Uh, PayPal's straight contribution. Patreon's a subscription starting at just a dollar an episode. You can click the links on our website for each. Please know that when you share with us in the cost of doing business, whatever doesn't go straight to production gets redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans, a lot of organizations that you've heard of through our show. Very sincere thank you to those who do take part. We're always humbled that you enjoy the show enough to do so, uh, and we thank you. As far as intangibles, we appreciate any interaction on our social media, as well as any reviews on your favorite podcast player, sort of uh, moving us up the charts a little bit. Finally, the simplest thing that you can do if you like the show is tell somebody else uh, so we can keep spreading by word of mouth. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. All right. So how did you know that you were, cause you said you didn't really make a plan other than your crazy trains, planes, and automobiles plan. But how did you know that you wanted to pursue entrepreneurship, right? Like why not just take a job somewhere? Everybody wants to hire a special forces Lieutenant Colonel, right? I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that statement is true. Um, I, you know, it just never really appealed to me. The idea of like working on someone else's like problem or vision, right? So I think, I, I think I got spoiled uh, in my career, first of all, in the military, now, where I had a lot of flexibility or opportunity, you know, probably more so than most Army officers, uh, to like be innovative and explore sort of new ideas and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that part of my DNA, I guess, carried over where, you know, and, and I recognize now um, that, you know, you could still do that from within the corporate environment and that sort of thing. But I was, I guess, um, stuck on the idea of like, a, you know, I want to, I want to find a problem that I want to solve that interests me that I can really sort of totally immerse myself in one that I feel is, um, is important. That's going to do something good for the country, for the world kind of thing. So I had those sort of naive and sort of immature ideas of like how to do those sorts of things. And so I started thinking about the idea of, of doing it with my own business with a, through entrepreneurship. And I guess that just stuck and you have limited time. And, you know, even in, in a business school environment, like you got to figure out what you want to do if, if you really want to get something out of it. So, um, yeah. you know, that's, those are the things that I focused on because of, um, those notions, you know, Pre preconceived notions going into school. So you had a pretty like ripe background for what you decided to start building, right? In terms of career management. And it seems like there was a, I don't know how natural it was for you, but you kind of understood the problem a little bit more from, you know, your time managing the recruiting battalion 
and then getting into headlamp. So I guess, you know, just to, for context on the, for, you know, listeners sake, yeah. just tell us what headlamp is. Yeah. So, uh, what headlamp is now is, um, cause I'll get to that, uh, what it was before, but headlamp now is a multi tenant community platform for veterans in transition. Um, and, and the customers that we serve are all of the intermediaries. You know, these are like the 40,000 plus nonprofits that all uh, serve veteran transition or have like, you know, veteran careers as part of their mission. And all of the employers that are interested in hiring veterans and, and building a, a marketplace, you know, where a veteran can come into it, employer can come into it, and, you know, we make sort of good matches. The focus is it's all about the experience that all of us have as we leave the military, going through the transition process and just kind of being overwhelmed, I think. You know, at least that was my perspective and the perspective of uh, a lot of folks that we talked to with what's out there, with all the information that's available to you. But, hey, what are you, you going to choose? And, you know, how are you going to do it? So that that's what Headlamp is now. Um, you know, our, our vision is to ensure that every service member finds their optimal career path uh, leaving the service. You said what it is now versus what it started as. So yeah, take us on that. Take <laughs> us on that thought journey. Yeah. So coming out of uh, army recruiting, um, I talked about uh, everyone was headed to college, right? So in New England, the other thing about that was that not everyone was graduating from college. And so we put a lot of, uh, and, we, and we figured that out, and we figured out how to reach that audience. And so we put in a lot of uh, folks uh, with some college you know, credit and who are looking for kind of a, a different opportunity because that wasn't working out for them. And yeah. um, so I thought, uh, again, a lot of uh, you know, just being naive about it, it's like, oh, I, you know, I have an insight into a problem. And there's a lot of these students that aren't finishing school that... Um, are being overlooked by the the, um, the workplace. You know that they're not getting credit for the you know the capability that they represent, uh, all that kind of stuff. So we were looking at a workforce process for students like that. Uh, come to find out, there's like this whole world of edu- education that deals with this. You know, there's professionals who've spent like their whole lives dealing with it. But we got interested in in sort of uh, workforce development in how people find their ways into careers. We got interested in working in the future, like as the environment changes. And so like spent a lot of time early on learning about all of these things that are out there and, you know, approaches and ways of thinking. And then uh, realized, okay, I don't really have a good understanding of this uh, space and all the, all the intricacies. But I, what I do understand is there's another group of, of folks who are undervalued and underappreciated for um, everything that they come with. And that's the veterans. And realized early on, you know, they, they tell you, they, professors and other entrepreneurs, like, you know, go with what you know. And had I done that <laughs> earlier, I, we'd be a lot further along. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we came to that realization, like, you know, about a year, year plus ago. Yeah. When you say we, who are you talking about? Uh, I've, I've got a co-founder, Nunzi. He's uh been with me for a long part of this journey, like, you know, starting with um, the idea of, of, you know, the alternative uh, students. And like, we drove around all, all over 
New England, you know, going to universities, talking to high schools and uh, that sort of thing. So Nunzi started as my, uh, you know, I asked him for, for some help once, uh, some, you know, just some advice to, you know, be an advisor. And that's kind of how he started. And just over time, as our, um, as we evolved at looking at the problem and understanding kind of like how the whole system works, he uh, just started working full time with me on this. And, and so now we're sort of equal partners trying to create some uh, a new way of looking at uh, how uh, veterans make their way into the into the workforce. So, yeah, because there's a lot of stuff that sucks now. Yeah. Or has sucked like uh, <laughs> I <laughs> I do resume reviews here and there. Yeah. And uh, I get them and I say, where did you get this? And the person says, well, there's a service that you know, does resume translation and writes it for you. And I'm like, stop using that service. <laughs> and, uh, or, uh, you know, there's other like skills translators or all of that stuff. And yeah, I don't know like how, how well calibrated it is. You know, it's like, I mean, I was, a was a medic for a while and I just didn't want to do that when I left. So it's like, forget translating all of that skill right yeah like if I, i'm just like on to the next thing or yeah. um i forget who we had on or maybe it was during the uh like the round table recently i don't know i forget who it was but they're like yeah i'm not i know that i'm not going to be able to do my military job after the military you know yeah. whether it's like combat engineer or explosive ordnance infantry whatever right it's like do i really need that I don't know. Tank driver. So, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like what to you, what's the future of it? There are some things that I, as I tested it or I talked to folks that they had poor experiences with it. So I'm always uh, careful to talk with future partners here. So, cause our approach is that there are a lot of good things that are happening out there, right? There, there yeah. are these pockets of excellence uh, people who really care, you know, who invest a lot of time, maybe their resume writing skills aren't up to snuff, you know, or maybe it's like uh, suited for one particular industry. But it's it's just this huge battle, you know, this huge space, uh, fractured space with uh, so many pockets of excellence, nothing connecting it. You're lucky if you run into, you know, as a veteran. So like we're we're coming from one of the top business schools. We had a lot of other resources available to us, right? Uh, but yeah most people don't get this opportunity and they're left to fend for themselves. And so it's really a matter of, of luck, right? So there are some approaches that we don't think after like studying this problem and looking at it and, you know, trying things. I don't think the problem uh, is necessarily about matching up your MOS or the job titles that you had uh, to equivalent skills in the civilian sector. I joke about it with Nunzi sometimes, but it's like I was on the other side of the recruiter, you know, on the recruiter side. And I know that when we put people into the military, it's not necessarily because that's what they were destined to do for the rest of their life. It's like that's that's what the Milper message that morning said. Hey, we need to focus on this MLS or this you know assignment. And so, you know, you walked in and and you ended up being a tank driver. To think that that experience should be defining for somebody who has spent three years in the military, now they're getting out, uh, you know, because that's that's the majority of, of our focus are those first and second term enlisted soldiers who have served well, uh, have a lot of opportunities ahead of them. And 
to think that their their path is determined by kind of you know what they did in the military. They should get the benefit and the experience. You know, uh, they yeah. should be credited for the experience that they have. But it's not about matching up to their skills. Uh, absolutely, if they want to leverage, you know, sort of if they picked up a technical skill. If you're in that boat, though, you don't need a skills translator or resume. You, you know, you're going to go get the credential. You already know that um, I did IT in the military, and I want to go do IT outside of the military. I'm carrying this credential with me. So the the idea that it's about skills translation, we think is is not necessarily the right approach. I think what we've seen and kind of just experienced talking to folks is that it's just figuring out uh, what it is you want to invest your time in during your transition. Like that's that's the hard part, trying to determine what do I want to do. Like because <laughs> the world is totally open to you, you know, at that point. And, yeah. you know, you, you've got this PCS, you can move anywhere in the world or anywhere in the States. You have all this flexibility and just determining where you want to invest your time. And there's not a lot of information about, well, if I do that, what are the outcomes going to be like for me? Am I going to set myself up for failure here? You know, that sort of thing. So our approach is to, to think about it in terms of uh, uh, veterans like me, you know, where are, where are the veterans that are like me and what, what have they tried and Oh, hey, that's interesting. What what Matt DeVivo did, uh, I know Matt, or I know guys like Matt, and what he's doing is interesting to me. Let me engage with him. You know, let me engage with him personally. Let me engage with you know the information that we have about him, sort of from the data approach, and put that data into the veterans' hands so they're a little bit more empowered to make the right decisions. So that's that's kind of our approach and you know our thinking about the ecosystem. Maybe I shouldn't have been too disparaging because I think a lot of those people are like volunteering a ton of their time. No, you know, uh, it's it's like it's honest feedback, though, because because if you ask a veteran about their transition experience, you know, to a person, it it sucked. Right. It's bad. It's you know, um, there's just because there are a lot of, uh, you know, there are mistimed and misguided advice all over the place. But yeah, so. Our approach to it, you know, because we're not trying to replace any of that capability, we're not even trying to tell people, hey, we know what we're the experts at transition. We're just saying, here are all the capabilities available to you, and here's all the information about uh, what your experience could be if you invest your time with this organization. And by the way, we'll make it easy for you to to interact with, you know, folks that uh, partner with us this is like the, the red ocean case, um, you know, instead of trying to compete in the red ocean and instead of trying to go off on our own, uh, cause I think there are a few solutions that are trying to do that. And it's like, Hey, we'll just do it a, a totally different way. We're looking at it as, Hey, we want to support all of the ones that are doing well and allow their performance to, you know, sort of, uh, scale them up. Right. If you're, if you're doing good things, everyone should know about it and, and more people should come to you. And that's what we want to empower. I know that there are other populations of people that go through life transitions, right? It could be changing industries. It could be making the decision to become a full-time parent or at least for a number of years. Or, But I think that one of the, thing that, one of the things that's uh, unique about military is the lack of a plan. Is that most other transitions are to something Right. A lot of people in the military are away from something. Yeah. And especially a lot of junior enlisted or first time contracts 
they get out and they're like, well, I think I'm done with this, but I haven't really thought about what next. A lot of people kind of slide into what their military specialty was, but then a lot of people just like don't know what's out there. Yeah. I think that's a little part, a little bit behind like why we, it's an element to why we wanted to do the podcast. We just want to share people's firsthand yeah. experience about what happened to them. Uh, just so you can kind of like know, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, even when I left, I was like, well, I want to stay economics. So I guess I'll work at a bank. Yeah. Like that was, that's how wide my field of view was. Yeah. Right. How important is it to get as wide of, of you as you can when you're taking that step out? I, yeah. I mean, first of all, from a personal aspect, you're asking the wrong guy. I know this is what I do for a living, but it's like, I want to know everything, right? I like, I, I want all the information that's available. Like, why would I not want to know everything that's possibly able to be known so that I can make the best decision possible. That's the mentality I bring to this, right? It's like, um, you know, so how much should you know? It's like, man, veterans have so many opportunities ahead of them. We, you know, what's cool about uh, what we're doing is we run across organizations that like they are making true life-changing, you know, sort of impact on individuals. I'll do some shout outs, right? Like uh, Warrior Scholar Project, uh, we've talked to them a number of times and, you know, we're trying to work with them. But, um, you know, they they uh, bring veterans who are interested in college and they put them through a boot camp at like MIT or Columbia or Yale or Princeton, you know, and, and they put them through like two months or two, excuse me, two weeks in the summer to do an academic boot camp. And we've talked to some of the folks that have gone through their program. It's like, I was going to be, you know, I was in the Air Force. I did, uh, you know, drones, you know, UA, UAV operator. And, you know, I'm getting out and like I was going to head back and be a beautician. And, you know, because that's just kind of like that was the arc of what I know and, and my network. And through the War Scholar Project experience, you know, at least the last time we talked to her, she's, you know, she did uh, a her boot camp at MIT ended up talking to um, astronomy PhD, you know, a, a professor and like, that's what she's doing now. Right. I mean, she's, she's in a PhD track program or I think, you know, I think that's where she was headed. So it's like the, the, the change that happens if you can intervene and, and provide some information. It's like how many more people are there like her that could have experienced that sort of generational changing kind of uh, career change, yeah. you know, impact to me, it's like, man, it, it's a waste every time that doesn't happen. So that's, that's kind of like, th- those are the stories that, you know, that kind of get us thinking about it, you know, get us excited. So I was just thinking about your whole operation being sort of an optimization mm-hmm. exercise, and then you called the opposite a waste. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So uh, LinkedIn did a study, you know, about all the folks that are on LinkedIn. And so like, keep in mind that is mostly like uh, people with a bachelor's degree or, or higher. Uh, but, you know, veterans on, you know, kind of across the board, just underappreciated, underutilized, not just like feeling un- underappreciated, but like it shows up in kind of what they're doing. And, you know, ultimately it has a negative impact uh, to employers, right? Because if you're not optimizing 7% of the workforce, veterans represent 7% of the workforce. If you're not optimizing there, there's a lot of waste to your point. Yeah. Yeah. Astronomy was like my favorite elective in college. I would have, uh, if I had a little more time on my hands, I would have (laughs) 
maybe gone into that instead. Yeah, just lying out yeah. there uh, in a open field. <laughs> yeah, no. there's too much light pollution here in New York. You can't see any stars. Whenever you escape the city, you just like you can go out at night and just look straight up for you know yeah. a couple minutes. So kind of we understand what you're trying to do what's the user experience like the user experience that we're going for you know we're we're still building everything and, and working on it but um the idea is for for the veteran for it to be you know sort of seamless um for them to sort of navigate between organizations that could help them coming in and out of different communities to find out information about, you know, okay, I'm interested in economics. And, you know, I think that translates to banking. Let me engage with a community of guys like me or, you know, soldiers or service people like me and find out if my assumptions are true. Uh, I think I want to be an innovator. And and I think that means I need to be an entrepreneur. You know, that's, that's my story. You know, where do you go right now kind of, uh, for a trusted resource, to, um, you know, get information about that. And I, I don't, you know, if it exists, you got to tell me, cause then we got to change some stuff. Um, but you know, I don't think it really, you know, we, we've been looking at it and, and, you know, no one, no one's really taking that approach. Um, and we've gotten some feedback that it is a unique approach because everything else is skills, translation and job boards and resume oriented and that sort of thing. But, but the problem is it's like, what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, I think a lot of service people joke about that no matter how many years yeah. they're in service. Cause you know, you're in the military, it's, you're, it's different and you don't have to think about that as much, but yeah. What do you want to do when you grow up or when you leave the military is like one of the toughest questions. Um, and for most of us, we just put it off. We didn't think about, you know, everyone else who went into the civilian sector, figured that out, you know, after high school or college. We sort of pushed that off, in my case, like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from developing the actual product, what else have you learned either, you know, the hard way or, or still learning about creating an organization, uh, running the business side of it? I mean, it's and a- like, are you monetizing it? Because it sounds, you know, yeah, it, yeah, it sounds, it sounds philanthropic, but there's always expenses. Yeah, no. Uh, so it, we are a for-profit organization and th- there's definitely a profit motive. Uh, we think that employers ultimately are the benef- get the most value, um, you know, benefit from the value. Um, yeah. And so they're the, you know, they're the payers into the system. Um, you know, it's a subscription model for employers, for intermediaries. To deliver more value on that, we have to create some software that helps them uh, run their organizations. It has to be useful to them. So they subscribe to the tools that are useful to them, but they gain the community of, you know, sort of community of communities as, as everyone's uh, coalesced and, and, and benefit from access to more talent or they benefit from access to more employers, you know, sort of both sides of the marketplace. And so we're looking at subscription. We're launching a pilot this summer, uh, had uh, a team of software developers, uh, grad students out of ASU that, um, you know, nothing like free labor. Um, it was their capstone project and, you know, they worked on it for the past uh, 12 weeks. We, you know, we need to do a little bit more work on the software to, um, to, to feel good about putting it in customers' hands um, and then, you know, start piloting. And, you know, aside from that are just talking uh, constantly to uh, customers, employers, 
Um, you know, today we talked to somebody who encouraged us to sort of to start cold calling every college. You know, there's 7,000, just work our way down the list, um, you know, and, and start selling, you know, um, the vision. The lessons learned about it, it's like, I mean, everything's been an error. Um, it, everything, you know, everything is like bouncing up. I, I felt, I feel like it's been, you know, the when you go to the bowling alley and you've got those rails up for the kids. And, you know, <laughs> you're just chucking the ball down. And, and so, you know, I'm just bouncing my way from wrong decision or wrong idea one after another. I'm just lucky enough that I threw the ball hard enough, I guess, that it's going to get to the end. That's my way of thinking about mistakes and, you know, kind of feeling my way through the minefield. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you uh, did you do any work on the side too, like speaking or consulting or anything like that? I did early on. Yeah. You know, just like leadership, uh, like leadership consulting. Yeah. You know, kind I, of stuff. I, I worked, uh, you know, I, th- I thought that might be a way to like do both uh, things for a while and um, uh, hooked up with an organization called Afterburner founded by some Air Force folks, but they uh, had a, a consulting business where I worked as a contractor, you know, went on different trips to uh, talk about my experiences, talk about their IP, about, you know, organizational management and change management, that sort of stuff. Um, You know, building a strategic vision and taking the lessons that we learned from the military and applying it to the corporate world. Yeah. So did a few of those things, you know, it's getting up in front of a group of like, you know, the school teachers from uh, some district in, I don't know, New Mexico or wherever we were. It's like, you know, a thousand people. It's like that, that's not really my thing, but I tried to make myself learn how to do that. But so I did do some of that. Um, there are some guys that did that and they turned that into their career, you know, cause they really, really enjoy it. I know that there are, you know, there's plenty of, uh, military ex military leadership consulting firms out there. You know, you see them pop up, whether it's McChrystal or whether it's like Jocko or, you know, probably 50 people on my LinkedIn who do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And you wonder like, you know, how much of it is translatable and how much of it is just, you can't know if all you know is military. Like I've learned a lot of things since moving into like non-military organizations and that people have different motivations. There's different leadership techniques and you kind of have to like blend them together. So, yeah, I don't know if you had any more thoughts on that, but uh, maybe I'm just riffing now. No, I mean, uh, you know, I think there is something where it's like, um, you know, I think the the military is sort of like opaque to the rest of uh, society, right? You know, it's very mysterious about the acronyms we use and the way we interact and, you know, just our approach to, to problems and all that kind of stuff is it's very foreign because there's a lot of interest in uh, understanding that there's lots of opportunities. Uh, like you said, you know, 50 people on your LinkedIn, uh, a new one every day. Who's like, I'm an executive coach, executive leader, but they're only doing it because uh, corporate America values it, I guess. Right. They, they want to see yeah. some of that, but to your point, it's like the military doesn't necessarily have a lock on. It's just, it's one way. It's one aspect of our, you know, of our society. Right. Um, right. It's just, uh, I, I think it's the opaqueness, you know, and it, that's why I really appreciate what like you guys are doing when, when you, uh, you guys started this up. It's like at the time we were thinking, it's like, man, we need to get more stories. And so how would we capture that? And we saw you guys come up with it. like, okay, 
hey, they got it. You know, and, and there's, you know, you guys aren't the only ones doing it. There's lots of, you know, ways to get the stories about veterans and bridge that gap that exists, I think. So I think this is a, yeah. a great uh, step in, in kind of solving some of those. We need someone who is like a Navy SEAL, a football coach, and like a tech founder. Yeah. Like, that would be that would be the ultimate public speaking. All one person. Engagement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there's yeah. probably one in, in coming up somewhere. <laughs> I saw some, I saw like smattered all over social media. There was a guy who was like a SEAL, a doctor, and an astronaut or something. Yeah. And I'm like. Doesn't it make you, you feel like underachiever? <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off. It, it may. No, go ahead. <laughs> It doesn't actually, not to take anything away from him, but it makes me wonder how much time are you spending in each one of those? And this might be a byproduct of being from the military too, but every couple of years, I just get that itch. Yeah. Like, man, I'm stagnant. I got to do something else. Now it never materialized into being a doctor or an astronaut. So, you know, maybe I get, maybe I'll do that next. But yeah. um, Yeah. Every couple of years, you kind of like get this itch, like. All right. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? Yeah, I keep yeah, telling the kids never... we're we're, we're uh, once you know the flights start up, we're going to go to Mars. So I'll be an astronaut. You know, I'll just pay for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get to hibernate for two years or whatever in your little like uh, life pod. I don't know how that's all going to work. Yeah, yeah. We'll go to Mars. Why not? Yeah. Before we start wrapping up, I guess if someone's sure. interested in headlamp either like for their organization or to be you know enrolled or a member yeah what should they do the best place you know i would direct folks is just email me (laughs) right now because our website (laughs) is like pretty uh it's dated and it's you know um rudimentary but steve at myheadlamp.com the website's you know myheadlamp.com they can find me there uh that way but um, yeah, we're, you know, absolutely interested in talking and, and really just like learning about everyone's experience and, you know, learning what, um, challenges people face. Cause you know, we're at that stage where we want to adapt to everything and, you know, try to figure out what fits, um, sort of universally. So we have to ask you before you leave our marquee show question is who are you today? If you never served, who am I to, uh, gosh, man, that is so unfair. I think they asked the question at business school, you know, in the application process, but, you know, and, and every now and then you run across, like, what are your hobbies? Um, mm-hmm. And like, I, I don't have any hobbies because <laughs> for at least the last, uh, well, through my service, you know, the last 16 years of it or so, it's like, I only knew one thing. It's like work, right? <laughs> so um, all we did was work and, and the environment we were in. And, you know, it's not to say that I was uh, doing anything above and beyond. It's just that's the environment. So, um, man, you know, so much of who I am is is that experience, right? All those leaders that I interacted with. So, yeah, to take your question, a, you know, a step deeper, it's like without all that, who am I? Man, I'm a, I'm a 20-year-old Southern California kid, you know, going to school at UC San Diego, trying to play soccer all the time that I can and, you know, hit the beach with no real direction and purpose in life, uh, no specific goals, just doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. So, yeah, without the military, that's 
that's where I was. <laughs> Who knows where I would have gone <laughs> from that point, but it, it's impossible for me to imagine like a different set of experiences because everything uh, about my time in service was formative. Just yeah. all the people you, you know, all the, all the experiences you have and all the people you interact with, there's some incredible people. And like, if that doesn't rub off on you in some way, it's, you're just not awake, I guess you're not paying attention. So if I didn't know what I was doing at all or had nothing to do, San Diego is probably, probably be the place where I'd hang out. Yeah. Just like hit the beach. So yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think I would have ended up like at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography and like just be on a boat all the time. And, you know, I think that lifestyle would have suited me. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I like all that, but, and yeah, San Diego is a good spot, you know, but I ended up in Hawaii. So <laughs> that, yeah, it's not like it was rough or it was, you know, drastically different from that. And then Okinawa. So, <laughs> Which is yeah. yeah. Do you surf? Are you like always in these crazy beach spots? I I never uh, I tried a few times and just it wasn't my thing. But um, yeah. water sports, you know, uh, scuba kayaking, yeah. all that. But yeah, I mean, I lived on Waimea Bay and watched like the surf come in all the time. But um, maybe that's what scared me off of it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> those are some you know the, that's massive. <laughs> yeah. Ben gets his, uh, Ben has like a boogie board with a Tasmanian devil graphic on it nice. that he got from the, from like the beach shop. And he, he goes and hits the waves at uh, Coney Island with that. Nice. Yeah. So, big flippers, you know, yeah. <laughs> flippers, goggles. I hop on the subway. Yeah. You know, I get the looks, but it's okay. <laughs> Do you know what, uh, now that we're in bullshit mode, so I can take his name out. You know what John, uh, told us? He goes, I, I really wish you guys would do an episode like Howard Stern, where Matt's just like talking dirty to everybody and Ben tries to get the show back on track like Robin. Yeah. That was, uh, I mean, that could be an approach that would, you know, you, you should try that out. Like second time guest, bring Micah back on and don't let him know that's what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. I'll just bring Micah on, see if we can <laughs> shake it up, get him out, get him out of his clothes or something. Who knows? Yeah. Hopefully it's like yeah. interesting. I mean, it's, I look at the list of folks that you have on there um, that you've interviewed and it's like, man, that's, that's an impressive crew. So it's great what uh, folks have done out there. Yeah. Amazing it's, people. Uh, it's enjoyable to partake in a community that is so, you know, there's only like one or two degrees removed from everybody. And yeah. I think Ben said this on the last episode or two episodes before this one. He was like, man, I looked at some of the other guests and I was like, these people are doing pretty well. And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, we're all connected, you yeah. know, even more closely than, you know, than we think. So anyone you see who wore the uniform recently is out there doing something. You're probably only one or two phone calls away from that person. Yeah. Um, which is what we've discovered. So it's actually pretty cool. Uh, supposed to meet up with John uh, in a couple of days. So I'm going to. Yeah, he said he was up there. You guys have to go. Uh, Where's the you spot? You guys have to go. Yeah. <laughs> Harrison's Roast Beef, man. It's like. Harrison's? Okay. Yeah. Were you in Lexington? Well, uh, so we're going to meet up in Boston, headed to the point. Oh. In, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, just because just I've been there before. It's not like I get into the city that often. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
But, uh, yeah, I'm not. There's a, like a hole in the wall. If you like roast beef sandwiches, like yeah. New England style roast beef sandwiches, there's like a there's a place called Beachmont in Revere. Yeah. If you're ever in the city driving out, it's it's almost as good as Harrison's. Harrison's up where I grew up. What the fuck is a New England style roast beef sandwich? <laughs> it's like a, uh, you know. It's old. You take it out of the <laughs> oven. No, you have like a big like roast, like an oven roast, right? Yeah, yeah. Like for Christmas or whatever. You take it out of the oven, put it on the slicer while it's still hot. You slice it right onto the sandwich. You get like a like a big onion roll with some uh, uh, some sauce on it. It's like barbecue sauce, but not really like barbecuey. Okay, I was just curious what makes you it just at New to... England. I didn't know it was regional about it. <laughs> I went. Uh... All right. Oh, I was going to say no, with roast beef. Yeah, I, I'm plant based now, and uh, really, yeah, um, it, it's probably a big surprise. Yeah, no, it's it's not by like you know because I well, I mean it, I'm doing it, um, just uh, like inflammation and that kind of stuff. So I, I I decided to try it out, and just like joint pain was just getting unbearable. So really, um, yeah, and uh, it's actually has you it know, helped. I think so. You know, it might be placebo effect a little bit. You know, I'm not like 100%. You know, it's plant-based, not, you know, vegan. So it's not like mm. it's religious for me or anything like that. But just try to cut out most of it. And uh, Yeah. There's yeah. a, uh, one of the guys. Yeah. Yeah. To, uh, curcumin, which I think is like the thing that's in turmeric. Yeah. Which is like the. For help know. fighting inflammation and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One of the guys we had on, Kevin Flake, he uh, works at the Green Bray Foundation, and he's yeah. out there in, in Mass. They, like, partner with TB12. Like, Kevin got shot, medically retired as a staff sergeant, and his, you know, his leg was super fucked. And um, he started working out at TB12, like Tom Brady's place, you know? Yeah. And uh, he was he was ready to run the marathon last year. Wow. And it's just got, you know, postponed for the second year in a row. So, um, he will run the marathon, you know, a guy who got shot in Afghanistan and they said, you know, probably wouldn't be able to walk without a limp for more than a hundred feet. Um, you know, he will run the marathon whenever it's back on. So, um, but yeah, I didn't know if you were, you were buying into some kind of like, you know, going, to help with the inflammation. Tom Brady's thing is all about inflammation, like yeah. acid, alkali, diet, like doesn't eat tomatoes, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I don't eat yeah. tomatoes anyway, so it's like, um, yeah. but it's hard to, no, just when you mentioned roast beef, I thought, you know, man, I would, I could kill for a roast beef, but you know, now I, when I look at a, a meat based meal, like I could feel it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the the pain that might come with it, or that I associate it with now. So, oh, that's crazy. I can I can do it. You ever <laughs> see a you ever see a dog eating something that's just like way too hot, and they keep going? Yeah, <laughs> that that that's would be like, you. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. If someone said, if someone said Matt to get to get rid of whatever pain you have, you have to stop eating meat, or I'd be like. All right. No. Guess we're going with the pain. This is going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool hanging All out right. with you guys, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's good to see you in this uh, Zoom world that we're on right now. Yeah. When I come up for that roast beef, I'll stop in. 
Yeah, man. Let me know. It's, it's, it's so cool. good. They say this about like Michelin restaurants, right? Mich- they say Michelin three stars means that it's the best. It's good enough to travel to that country just to eat at that restaurant, right? Is that what they say? Sure. It sounds about right. Harrison's roast beef is good enough for me to drive four hours one way, once a year. To go get it. There you go. Uh, to go get it. I'm yeah. gonna go look it up. Yeah, I said I'll, I'll yeah, allow myself uh, one meal like a month, and it's just gotta be worth it. So, oh, if this is it, then you know, maybe hands this is down. The one. Oh yeah, Harrison's roast beef. Got it. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Steve helping career transitioners light the way with Headlamp. Again, check out more at myheadlamp.com. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.